With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Turret. They burst into the torpedo room, killing and wounding everyone there, blowing a jagged hole in the starboard side, and setting the ship on fire. An 8-inch shell came into the after battery and exploded between decks, causing many casualties. A 5-inch shell burst in the coal bunkers amidships, blew up the deck, and started a second fire. Another destructive hit was made by an 8-inch shell a few feet forward of the course where the pair of 12-inch shells had come in. The official report thus describes its course. An 8-inch shell struck the gun deck, just under the after barbette, passed through the side of the ship and exploded, ranging aft. The damage done by this shell was very great. All the men in the locality must have been killed or badly wounded. The beams were torn and ripped. The fragments of the shell passed across the deck and cut through the starboard side. The shell also cut the fire main. Shells from the lighter artillery of the American ships riddled the funnels and cut up the deck houses. One of these shells bursting near the forward bridge, wounded Admiral Cavera slightly in the arm. He had come outside the conning tower the better to watch the progress of his squadron. The armor belt had kept the waterline of the ship intact, and her barbettes and heavy guns were also protected efficiently by the local armor. But the enemy's shell fire had told on the unarmored structure, inflicted heavy loss, and started two serious fires. All efforts to get these under failed. The blazing tropic heat had scorched the woodwork of the ship into tinder. The movement of the vessel produced a draft that made the burning bunkers and decks roaring masses of flame. The men were driven by the heat from battery and engine room. The Maria Teresa, with silent guns and masses of black smoke ascending to the sky, was headed for the land. At a quarter past ten, she drove ashore at Nima Nima, six and a half miles west of Morrow Castle. Some of the men swam ashore, others were taken off by the boats of the Gloucester, which came up just in time to help in saving life. Commander Wainwright had to land a party to drive off a mob of Cuban guerrillas who came down to the shore and were murdering the hapless Spaniards as they swam to the land. One of the Gloucester's boats took out of the water Admiral Carvera and his son, Lieutenant Carvera. They were brought on board the yacht, where Wainwright chivalrously greeted the unfortunate Admiral with the words, I congratulate you, sir, on having made as gallant a fight as ever was witnessed on the sea. At half-past ten, another of the Spanish cruisers was a helpless wreck only half a mile westward of the stranded and burning flagship. This was the Almirante Oquendo, whose station had been last in the line. This drew upon her a converging fire 
from the guns of the pursuing battleships and cruisers. The destruction was terrible. Two guns of the secondary battery were disabled. A shell came through the roof of the forward turret, killed and wounded all the gun crew, and put the gun permanently out of action. Ventilators and deck fittings were swept away, the funnels cut up, and the unarmored part of the sides repeatedly pierced by shells that started several fires amidships. It was these that made further effort to keep up the fight hopeless. After her captain, Juan Lazaga, had been killed by a bursting shell, the Okendo, now on fire in a dozen places, was driven ashore to save life. She blew up on the beach, the explosion of her magazines nearly cutting the wreck in two. Of the Spanish squadron, only the Cristobal Colon and the Vizcaya still survived. The Colon, best and newest of the cruisers, was making good speed and was furthest ahead. The Vizcaya lagged behind her, hard-pressed by several American ships, led by the Iowa. The Vizcaya had suffered severely from the fire of the pursuit. Her coal bunkers were ablaze on one side, and there was another fire making steady progress in the gun deck. Schley, in the Brooklyn, urging his engines to the utmost, rushed past the Iowa and attempted to head off the Vizcaya. Her gallant captain, Antonio Ulate, realized that the Brooklyn was the swiftest ship in the pursuit, and that her destruction would materially increase the chance of the Cologne escaping. So he made a last effort to ram or torpedo the Brooklyn before his own ship succumbed. He headed for Schley, with the torpedo ready in his bow overwater tube. A shell from the Brooklyn's battery struck it fair, exploded the torpedo in the tube, and blew up and set fire to the forepart of the Vizcaya. Ulate then headed his ship for the land, and she struck the shore under the cliffs at Aceradores, fifteen miles west of Morro, at a quarter past eleven. The Brooklyn, the Iowa, and the Oregon were pouring their fire into her as she ran aground. Another explosion blew up part of her burning decks, and Ulate hauled down the flag. The Americans cheered as they saw the flag coming down amid the clouds of smoke, but Captain Robley Evans of the Iowa called out from the bridge to stop the cheers of his men. Don't cheer, boys. Those poor fellows are dying, he said. Evans with the Iowa stood by the burning ship to rescue the survivors. The Cologne alone remained. She had a lead of a good six miles, and many thought she would escape. The Brooklyn led the pursuit, followed closely by the battleships Oregon and Texas, and the small cruiser Vixen, with Samson's flagship to New York far astern, too far off to have any real share in the action. On her trials, the Cologne had done twenty-three knots. If she could have done anything like this in the rush out of Santiago, she would have simply walked away from the Americans, but she never did more than fourteen. For some time, even at this reduced speed, she was so far ahead that there was no firing. It was not until ten minutes past one that the Brooklyn and Oregon at last got within range and opened fire with their forward heavy guns. The Cologne, with her empty barbettes, had nothing which which to reply at the long range. In the earlier stage of the fight, she had been hit only by an eight-inch shell, which did no material damage. As the pursuers gained on her, she opened with her secondary battery. Even now she received no serious injury, and she was never set on fire. But her captain, Moreau, realized that lack of speed had put him at the mercy of the enemy. As they closed in upon him and opened fire with their heaviest guns, he turned his ship into the creek, surrounded by towering heights, amid which the little Tarquino River runs into the sea, 
forty-eight miles west of Morrow Castle. He hauled down his flag as he entered the creek. Without his orders, the engineers opened the Kingston valves in the engine room, and when the Americans boarded the Cologne, she was rapidly sinking. She went down by the stern under the cliffs on the east side of the inlet, and lay with her bow above water and her after-decks awash. It was twenty minutes past one when she surrendered. The men of the Iowa and Gloucester had meanwhile rescued many of the survivors of the Vizcaya, not without serious risk to themselves, for there were numerous explosions and the decks were red-hot in places. Some of the Spaniards swam ashore, made their way through the bush to Santiago, and joined the garrison. Captain Ulate was brought on board the Iowa and received by a guard of marines, who presented arms as he stepped from the gangway. He offered his sword to Robley Evans, but the American captain refused to take it. You have surrendered, he said, to four ships, each heavier than your own. You did not surrender to the Iowa only, so her captain cannot take your sword. Never in any naval action was there such complete destruction of a fleet. Of the six ships that steamed out of Santiago that summer morning, the Furor was sunk in deep water off the entrance, the Pluton was ashore under the Sacapa Cliff, at various points along the coast, columns of black smoke rising a thousand feet into the sunlit sky showed where the burning wrecks of the Maria Teresa, the Oquendo, and the Vizcaya lay, and nearly fifty miles away the Cologne was sunk at the mouth of the Tarquino River. And never was success obtained with such a trifling loss to the victors. The Spanish gunnery had been wretchedly bad. The only ships hit were the Brooklyn and the Iowa, and neither received any serious damage. The only losses by the enemy's fire were on board the Brooklyn, where a signalman was killed and two seamen wounded. Nine men were more or less seriously injured by the concussion of their own guns. It must be confessed that the gunnery of the Americans was not of a high order. Some 6,500 shells were expended during the action. The Spanish wrecks were carefully examined, and all hits counted. Fires and explosion perhaps obliterated the traces of some of them, but so far as could be ascertained, the hits on the hulls and the upper works were comparatively few, and of hits by the heavy 13-inch and 12-inch guns, only two could be traced anywhere. The Spanish squadron had 2,300 officers and men on board when it left Santiago. Of these, 1,600 were prisoners after the action. It was estimated that in the fight 350 were killed and 150 wounded. This leaves some 200 to be accounted for. Nearly 150 rejoined the garrison of Santiago after swimming ashore. This leaves only 50 missing. They were probably drowned or killed by the Cuban guerrillas. The fact that three of the Spanish cruisers had been rendered helpless by fires lighted on board by the enemy's shells accentuated the lesson already learned from the Battle of the Yalu as to the necessity of eliminating inflammable material in the construction and fittings of warships. The damage done to the Vizcaya by the explosion of one of her own torpedoes in her bow tube proved the reality of a danger to which some naval critics had already called attention. Henceforth, the torpedo tubes of cruisers and battleships were all made to open below the waterline. The result of the victory was a complete change in the situation at Santiago. The destruction of Cavera's fleet was the beginning of the end for the Spanish power in Cuba. End of chapter 13 Recording by Alan Winteroud, 
boomcoach.blogspot.com.